You know, the interesting thing about neurosis and, and, and a lot of interesting musical things uh, about neurosis, but it's not the musical that interests me, uh, uh, which I love their music. It's not the musical that interests me as much as, or nearly as much as the musicians. And uh, and I've, I've had kind of really compelling interactions with them as people over the course of time. Um, but one of them I, I found... I, I, I find it interesting that I think that people who make the music, the kind of music that they make, are so tuned on an emotional level to the emotional level that it's it's really uh, pretty astounding. I mean, I was going through some weirdness in, in my life, and uh, at one point, uh, 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 you know, the woman who is now my wife had some surgery and died on the on the uh, operating table you know uh and, I mean, she's they brought her back to life uh but running up to this it was something that i uh was concerned about and as per my habit didn't mention it to anybody really uh, i think i had been on tour with scott kelly uh and he had maybe as an aside heard me talk about it with her or something on the phone in the hotel room or something really minor is I'm not of the habit of being uh, uh, obsessing publicly uh, vocally about personal miseries <clears throat> well coming up to that Christmas uh, and the holiday season uh, I get a call or maybe it was an email or a text from Scott and he said uh, he said hey what are you doing on New Year's Eve and I said nothing yeah, which is Pretty much my habit, not because I'm super antisocial, really, but because uh, you know I'm the father of three, and you just get out of the habit. I don't. It's amateur night. I don't need to be out there. So he uh, he said, "Listen, I want you to uh, neurosis is playing a New Year's Eve show. And that's uh, you know to me it, that's like the height, right? I've never actually played a a New Year's Eve show. It's super. It's like oh, yeah, I'm really happy for you, man. That's really cool. He goes, yeah, I'd like you to you know do the countdown." They have the countdown, you know, kind of MC. I'd I, I like it if you could show up and do that. And I was like, uh, he goes, it would mean a lot to me, you know. And I was like, all right, all right. So get my act together, kind of go on out, meet the guys up there at uh, wherever the, the venue was in Oakland. I don't remember at this point. And they hadn't played Oakland in such a long time. It was packed. I saw a lot of people and and actually, <clears throat> you know, left the evening. I did the 10, 9, 7, Happy New Year. And it was great. And I hung out and talked to folks I hadn't seen in a long time. And I went home and it took me probably about 10 days, <laughs> about 10 full days, dummy that I am, to realize like, <laughs> they didn't need an MC. <laughs> he, he didn't need an MC. You know, Scott just wanted to get me out of the house, man. He wanted to keep me from hearing the whisper of the guns, you know. He just, <laughs> you know. I mean, to have that kind of emotional intelligence, fuck, no wonder, no wonder, no wonder their music is as it is, you know? Um, and, and I've had over the course of time, each and every one of those guys, I, I've had similar non-musical uh, interactions that show me to a certain degree that they're paying a lot closer attention. Uh, um, you know, to the world around them, then, uh, then, <laughs> then, then people I know who get paid to do that, right? 
So, uh, you know, when Steve Von Till or something moves to, you know, out into the woods, it becomes pretty clear why he has to, man. You know, I don't think you could have that level of, of really aggressive empathy and be around people. It's actually the fact that I live in a suburban urban center here. Um, this probably speaks to my callousness as a human being that I could do so without being affected largely, but maybe I am, maybe I am. But I, I, I'm, I'm glad and, and to a certain degree blessed that I was able to, to, to see that uh, uh, in them. Um, and I've known them for a long time. I remember when they came in to record in House of Faith Studios, which is of course where Oxbow recorded the first two records and then uh, where I had a store. So Bart, who ran House of Faith Studios, a roommate, friend, guitar player, and whipping boy, and I, we started uh, CFY House of Faith, and CFY was the record store, record tape, t-shirt, video, guns, and tattoo store, and uh, Neurosis had come to record there, and I really didn't, you know, I knew them, they didn't really have anything to do with them, and at that time they were banned from Oakland, but they were always nice to me then, too. So, like my friend said, the people who were nice to you could fill a rogues gallery of killers and murderers, you know, Manson and so on. But, but these guys were nice to me because they're they're they're, they're nice and decent individuals, um, and uh, have paid it forward in many different ways, in many different fashions, uh, between and betwixt many different people. So, uh, when given the opportunity to you, 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 you to talk about them and tribute, I'm sure quite a few people would talk about their music. But I want to talk about the humans behind the music or the musicians. And uh, and uh, thanks for giving me the chance to do that. Thank you, Eugene Robinson. That was a, a very kind story that he told. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, I like all the different perspectives we're getting out of these. I thought, uh, yeah, I just thought he kind of speaks to the nature of like, you know, something like you and I just only interviewing these guys. We don't know them on a personal level. It's kind of fun to, to hear that sort of aspect. So like Bill, you know, having toured with them and, and things like that to hear those kind of stories. So, well, like the, what, what he mentions about the, uh, extreme, um, empathy. Yeah. That they, that's, <laughs> that's why Steve lives in the woods now Yeah, and why, you know, Scott lives in, uh, you know, in Southern Oregon and, like you can't be around it's I, I can kind of identify that to some degree that like you can't be around that many people when you like you feel that much sometimes i have um, some students who are like that and i think i think they get mischaracterized as like introverted but i think they're incredibly empathic and like so school's very like overstimulating for them and so they're yeah. like very quiet but then i'll like read their assignments and they're like so intuitive beyond like what I and they don't speak a word in class sometimes you know but like that intuitive sort of quality comes out and you're just like blown away like wow they're they're locked into like everything but like yeah. you don't know it because they don't speak a word or something they're that um I, like as a, a long time as a kid I was kind of the observer mm. I didn't really interact much in class and I remember getting um like for teachers conferences the teacher was like you know he's not paying attention. He's drawing in the, you know, doodling in the, on his pages and whatever. And yeah, and I was like, well, how how are his grades? They're fine. It's like, what's the problem? <laughs> well, there's all these expectations. I think that you get kind of programmed in. And you know, I've as a teacher, I've fallen into that trap and kind of gotten guilty of, of sort of judging a, a book by its cover sometimes. Um, 
but I, I am often also the teacher who will be in the teacher's lounge and other teachers will be slagging on like a student and I'll think about like, oh, that kid's like awesome for me. And I see that as like a weird like badge of honor almost because it's like that means I'm kind of tapping into like the potential of that kid who's like clearly either like bored or just turned off and causing problems for other teachers. And so like, I don't know, I just I just shrug my shoulders. I'm like, yeah, I like that kid. And I'll walk away because I'm like, eh. Like that sometimes the like teacher's on is like a den of negativity of complaining and, and things like that. And I can't handle that. Yeah, that's a, to try to have a one kind of like value solution for all these kids, like how to teach all these kids the same way is yeah that's that's a difficult thing to throw on anybody and it's 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 not the fault necessarily it's the industrialized model of education Mm -hmm. you know and and but at the same time like the frustration we were just having this conversation and and maybe steve will appreciate this as, as a fourth grade teacher and um i how to differentiate for kids you know when i have six classes with like you know 15 or 20 kids in each class like it's different than like if I'm an elementary teacher who I'm with the same 28 kids like all day long. Sure. I get, I, I can differentiate because I really do understand that Johnny needs this and Susie needs this and Billy needs this. I, you know, I see the kids for like an hour a day and it's like, you know, if I have like 25 kids in a class, like I can't differentiate for all 25 of those kids and then turn around an hour later and get 25 more kids and try, you know, like, I can't well, at the point of high school, I think if if everything went right, people would kind of like know what they needed by that point. It wouldn't it wouldn't quite as be as specific, but that's not but it could, the case. but you could be better, you know, because we we don't tailor the classes to the needs of the kids sometimes. It's yeah. because it's very much like a like assembly line education sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you try and mix up the activities you're doing and do something different and give something visual and do something more active, but at the end of the day, like everybody's more or less doing exactly the same thing, and that probably doesn't serve everybody. Yeah, you're doing like it's like uh, utilitarianism. You're trying to like do the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people, but like some people are going to fall by the wayside. Yeah, I had a a history professor or uh, teacher in high school who like kind of identified that I didn't like or I didn't excel at writing essays. Mm-hmm. So he was like, "Why don't you do a?" Give, do a comic for me. Yeah. Use that as an essay. That's badass. Who was that? Um, uh, Ferguson. Did you ever mm-hmm. him? Uh, no. Little short, uh, redheadish dude. I yeah, don't think he, he was there for very long. Yeah, I'd say he must have been gone by the time I um, got there. But yeah, he was, he was great. So like that, I, I got to write a, well, we got some animals thrown up or something. Oh, do we? Yeah, sweet. <laughs> well, um, you know, Steve talked about how people vomited at uh, Through Silver and Blood concerts because of the visceral experience. I think they're hearing us talk about all these like deep subjects. And it's, it's pretty like, heavy for animals. It's just, yeah, this is too much for my fat cat and your neurotic dog. <laughs> yeah, so ancient they, dog, they yes. make like a kind of weird Tango and Cash kind of kind of like you know, tag team. Which, by the way, I watched Tango and Cash the other night. It's, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's where... It's very of its time. It is, but I feel like the opening of the other guys with The Rock and uh, Samuel Jackson, where they like dive off the building and kill themselves, and then Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg take over. Like there, that's all based on Tango and Cash. <laughs> Those guys thinking they're yeah. vulnerable and all this, like. Yeah. Well, that and also um, Nice Guys. Have you seen that? Oh, I love Nice Guys. Yeah, yeah that's, that's Shane yeah. Black. I think yeah, Shane Black. That. Yeah, 
Yeah, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I, don't know I got on that. Oh, we were talking about the tag teaming of animals and yes. stuff. But um, yeah, so I, I just think education and, and th- kind of thinking about those kind of things is, is pretty fascinating. So, and then we heard about Billy Anderson's production a little bit, and then obviously before that we heard Locust Star and Purify. So. We're kind of getting to another, really, this is the the big last crux of the album before we get to this very sinister, um, I don't know if sinister is the right word, unsettling ending. Um, you know, the last song, uh, Enclosure in Flames, is, it, is that what it is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Inclo- it's, yeah, I don't want to talk about that yet. Because <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not a, it's not a experience of, I don't know. It's it's a weird song. So, um, but yeah, we're gonna kind of get into some stuff here. We're gonna get into um, the artwork a little bit too. So, I mean, do you want to talk about the artwork now, or do you want to talk about it um, kind of before? Well, the, yeah, there's we. I talked to him about it a little bit. There was because um, I think the good thing, any kind of art, there's all kinds of you know interpretation you can get out of stuff, and the especially on this record, if you look through the whole. Um, oh, here we go. Uh, the whole kind of like the iconography of the whole thing. What I thought that mask was, which we find out is like a a Roman legionnaire's mask. Yeah, I thought it was like a Buddha. Interesting. So, with oh like, yeah, yeah, it does kind of look like a Buddha. It looks almost. like I used to have a National Geographic magazine that had one of the like uh, the um, brass was a brass or, or um, it's not brass. What is the uh, what are statues made out of? Bronze, bronze, bronze yep. Buddha yep. statue. So you've got like the enlightenment and then the blood could be, you know, representative of humanity. And then the snakes, there's all kinds of different, yeah. um, like Buddhist things for snakes. The, um, I'm going back to, uh, to Joseph Campbell, um, the snake is life throwing off the past. The, um, uh, what was this thing? Oh, the serpent in in Buddhism represents the power of life in the field of time mm. to throw off death. The Buddha represents the power of life in the field of eternity to be eternally alive. And I, so I was like, shit, that, I was just listening to the Campbell shit. I was like, that really yeah. affects that a lot. But also like the the serpent in Catholicism is, you know, the forbidden knowledge to, to take you out of the, out of Eden and all this yeah. kind of thing. And the, the shedding of skin. There's so many like metaphors that you can get out of. Um, sure. out of that cover. And I don't think any of them were incredibly intentional, but I think if they listen to Campbell, all the stuff, all these archaic, and they're into union ideas, yeah. all the stuff is like so hardwired. Subconsciousness yes, stuff. Yeah. It's so hardwired into us that like those type of things like really elicit a react, like a visceral reaction. I mean, that is kind of the nature of union stuff is that like the archetypes. Yeah. yeah. And, but you're also like, you're doing things because you're programmed into like a human connectivity that goes beyond culture, geography. Yeah. You just part of this sort of collective thing that's interconnected when you're dreaming or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And so, yeah, even if it's not intentional to have these images and these metaphorical symbolic sort of things, it's like they're compelled to still do them because they, they feel that there's something there, you know? Yeah. There's like the, um, I mean, which they did in, uh, Enemy of the Sun with the Ouroboros, the that's can be used in the uh, you know the, the serpent eating itself, the order of you know, order and chaos stuff, like very yeah. like basic kind of religious kind of ideas that are thrown in this. The I was looking into some uh, 
metaphysical properties of silver. Um, there's like this, uh, the psychic power of healing that's yeah. known with silver. There's um, biblical blood is a symbol of humanity and permanence. Um, the, yeah, th- what I got out of through silver and blood was the um, chaos order and enlightenment. Is yes. could could be a I can a see representation that. like I I don't and they don't really go into why all that stuff but I don't I th- I like the fact that we can just kind of Pontificate. it elicits this many kind of like yeah. reactions just like why people still talk about the Bible three thousand years later is because you can interpret yeah. meanings out of it sure. and it it applies to no matter what era of humanity we're in yeah I think those kind of powerful iconic religious image images really kind of benefit this record yep i I can't and i don't the i don't know if you've seen the reissue Mm -mm. um i've got i've got the original cd but the uh what was i think it was 2015 relapse reissued it on those like super huge like southern lord thick vinyl things yeah um so it's basically it's just the snakes and the blood without the mask behind it and it's kind of like losing a little bit of something with that um for me but i don't know if there's like a like a legal reason why they didn't do that or yeah were you were you part of the any of the creation of the marketing for any of this record on some kind of level because you were at relapse yeah, at the for, time i did um i did some like the advertising campaign stuff where we basically just took images that because they they put the whole thing together themselves and sent it to us on on um as we discussed sidequest drives yeah, for yeah, yeah. you know the people in their 40s and 50s that used to do graphic design um but yeah, we so we took some like the the blood vessel images and stuff, and we'd use that as a backdrop and drop in all the different little thumbnails of what was coming out at relapse at the time. Or um, I did a, a sticker that I, I still have one copy of. Yeah, that was kind of like a, a metallic sticker that had the neurosis logo and the snakes, and then the the blood vessel kind of background sure. thing. Um, but yeah, the basically advertising is what I did. And we just kind of put the they sent us the stuff. We tweaked a little bit of it in a format. Mm-hmm. to make it ready for the printer and then shipped it off yeah awesome i mean it's cool to be part of that on some yeah, level even, yeah, if, even if at the time you didn't know how big the record was yeah like that and uh i get to work on amorphous elegy and yeah. you know so it was, it was neat most of the stuff that i did by myself was stuff that nobody wanted so it was like blood duster yeast right? blood duster yeast and uh pica and um there's some italian noise thing i, I don't atrax morgue oh yeah was another one yeah um just a lot of stuff that yeah, you know, I helped out with some of the other stuff, but like the art director gets the cherry pick, and that's who, who's the who's the art director? There? Eric Horst. Okay, What's, so, does he do anything creative? He's, he's still a, a creative director at some point, but oh, I mean, okay. he hasn't been with Relapse for for quite some time. Yeah, but I remember working on him with the, um, just like talking about the uh, more elegy stuff than this. This was kind of already fully formed, but yeah, um, like yeah, elegy with like the handwriting and stuff in it, and sure, um, yeah, that's a cool dealing with like the slides and. It was a totally different, um, the interesting part of this stuff, like this was all digital files, but a lot of the time we would get a, uh, like a slide. Mm-hmm. So you'd give them the slide to the, the printer that they would scan. And then you give them the coordinates where you'd wanted the text to go. Um, you got an old dog coughing here. So <laughs> apologize. Uh, there's a peaceful podcast where, um, oh, fuck what the hell is his name? Uh, basis for anathema. Early Dave on. Pibus. Dave Pibus. Yeah, he was a graphic designer. Yeah, he was the for, guy for Peaceful. For right? Peaceful, yeah. and he does. If you're interested in the old graphic design techniques, 
he really goes into this stuff a lot. So it's, but that, that was kind of the era where I was a graphic designer. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. And we'll, when we get into this next set of music, uh, you know, after we hear a little testimonial from Albert, where he talks kind of about the really relapse and kind of the role of what this album did for speaking of relapse and yeah. working there. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of getting into some artwork, but, but we've got kind of a, a pair of the, uh, probably the last two sort of epic um, gems of the record. I mean, you can make an argument for the final track, but I think that's a altogether a different sort of song, but I think strength of fates and Aeon are kind of, you know, when push comes to shove Aeon might be, it might be my favorite song on the record. I don't know. Like it, it kind of moves and ebbs. It depends on what mood I'm in. You know, it's yeah. kind of like some days I want falling uh, slowly. Some days I want, stones of the sky you know (laughs) like it's kind of its own thing but but strength of fates um i I said no band in the realm of heavy music has ever had more emotional intensity in their quiet passages than neurosis yeah i just said that that this is exhibit a the three you're three minutes in i said i want to sort of crawl away or weep like i just like this song just intimidates me those three minutes and it's not loud it's not heavy it just it just it it's just very i said the song you know the the piano the minor chord changes it's just i said it's like having your soul examined and reconstituted like it's it's really a powerful mirror see this, yeah this this is these are the types of songs where i when i hear i i can appreciate opeth on a lot of levels but they were like kind of like emotion light mm-hmm. um like they tr- they did the quiet soft contemplative but there's never really anything behind it yeah you know with opeth but i think they're yeah they're kind of more rooted in european music yeah right and i think this is this is so i don't know maybe we're (laughs) spoiled by hearing this first Mm -hmm. um but yeah this is this stuff is so like just it's so it's so raw and honest that I don't know. I think that like increases the the level of like how, how you know sure how we kind of experience it more so than um, did you ever other things but. dig around into any of the lyrics on this stuff or poke around at all? Mostly on Locust. I did. I looked okay. through a little bit, but it wasn't. This is the one where I I said it's kind of an exploration of I, I said a kind of a, the fractured mind of a survivor, and I said whether it's an actual apocalypse or a metaphor for the hurdles of of kind of. Yeah. Know, personal apocalypse, you know, addiction, depression, death, whatever that is that the the band or anybody is kind of, you know, confronting it. I kind of think it's like really in the eye of the beholder, you know. Yeah. That's but, I think that's why the the lyrics and music work together so well. It's not a it's not like a, a blueprint of here's what happened to me and here's how I got through it. It's like a it's a Joseph Campbell yeah, <laughs> level mystery of here's here's the mythology of how we we got through this together. But I think there's something, you know, the line dust falls through my hands, dreams shatter away, burning glow turns to ash, thrown to wind. I mean, I just wrote fuck. Like it's just <laughs> like you know. I mean, to me, this this is the connective tissue. I said the anguish in these vocals is going to some dark places, and it connects to the Jira song that we heard in part one. Yeah, you yeah. see through me. This is that version of it. It's quieter in the way that you th- see through me is like acoustically driven and mm-hmm. things. Um, but it's raw scars, you know, there's this thing I, I don't, I didn't really look into it cause I remember reading about it years ago when I was, you know, 
and researching Beatles history or something like that. But when the Beatles broke up and, and John was kind of hooked up with, with Yoko and, and really kind of getting into like a lot of her like weird stuff that she was kind of into, they started doing like this kind of scream therapy. Um, I, it has a more primal scream therapy. Is it primal scream yep. therapy? Yeah. That's kind of what this, Th- that was is. a big thing in the seventies. Yeah, it yeah. definitely seventies was all about like weird, like, uh, which, and, I think there's something to it. Sure. Like, have you ever been so frustrated that you just scream at the top of your lungs in your chair? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there's like a, a certain type of release that you need to, that, that, that fulfills. There needs to be more to it than just that. Absolutely. But. Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, like when the f- song finally kind of like bursts open at seven minutes, it's like, it's almost a relief. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. it's, oh, finally, like Jesus Christ, you yeah. know, I can't handle this. Like, quiet like intensity anymore so like really freaking me out you know um and then you just kind of get i here's what i wrote about become the ocean not much i just said you get a minute and 30 seconds to catch your breath (laughs) that's it before the heaviest song tears you to fucking shreds and to me aeon is the heaviest song on the record um through silver the the title track has its moments you know um Purify has that provocation of the Black Sabbathy type kind of, you know, that thing. But to me, this seems to be kind of a consensus track on a lot of uh, what's that, Ann? Yeah, a lot of yeah, people we've talked to. It just seems like, yeah, the pieces kind of come together here. Um, I just said when that three minute mark arrives, it's frightening, it's harrowing. Uh, the bass scales are amazing. I said the song decays into the darkest pits of emotional hell around the five minute mark. Um, there's this doomy weight and anticipation. It's like a great horror film in a certain sense. It's it's like this inevitable part of a horror movie, this inescapable sort of thing where you know, you know, like Cthulhu or, or whatever. It's like existential horror. There's nothing you can do to kind of like escape wherever the fuck you're at at like that. You know, by the time you get to six minutes, it's fucking monolithic. You know, I think. It was actually Justin Norton, I think, was commenting uh, from Decibel, was commenting when Sarah Kitteringham did the interview with Steve, kind of talking a little bit about this record. They did the Overkill Rewind for Banger. Yeah, that's yeah. what it was. And he said, listening to that record is like trying to understand the monolith in 2001 Space Odyssey. And I thought, that's a, that's a, like, I get what he means by that. Yeah. You know, like, I know I understand 2001 Space Odyssey like 70%. And I don't care. I still like it. It's still like an incredible experience. There's things I, I will continue. I, I mean, I listened to a thirty-hour audiobook on it. Yeah, and I still am interested. Yeah, so that's the testament. To yeah, it. and that's like that's what I'm going to get out of Neurosis Records. Like, even though we dissected Sun That Never Sets like a few years ago, like I still can go back and like scratch the surface and you know yeah. peel some layers away. And like, I just feel like I'm I'm just kind of still digesting a record like this. And Aeon is a song that. I don't know. I'm going to probably continue to try and figure it out for years. You know, like every time I hear it, I'm going to hear it differently. Like you said, yeah. you were trying to listen to this album and like kind of different experiences and, and things like that. Um, I just said, you know, when, when Steve talks about like shamanist spirituality or a shamanist like ritual or incantation, this is it. Yeah. You know, the, for me, um, you know, it's heavy in the ways that this genre wasn't before this point. You know, whether it's the layers of sort of violins like that kind of fade in. Um, 
it's tribal once again, kind of like the opening track. Um, I said the song kind of decays in a certain sense, the way it sort of, it, it decays the way it entered. It decays out kind of in that way. And that's something that they'll do more and more in the future. Yeah. I think this is like the first time they really start to perfect it. Yeah, like the Southern Never Sets literal decay, yes. which is one of the most amazing fucking or Stones Stones of the Sky. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But that, yeah, that album. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, Chris Force, the stuff she's doing on violin, and, and I'm kind of bummed because I reached out to Chris and I, I never really kind of heard back. Um, you know, she's interviewed in that decibel neurosis issue, so mm-hmm. you know she's kind of weighs in on some stuff there. But what I kind of get out of this is. Some of the avant uh, classical music that Mike, our old manager, sort of turned me on, like Toru Takamitsu, who mm-hmm. did like some Kurosawa films and some other things. I hear some of that in this. Morton Feldman, he's like yeah. another kind of guy. Um, the, whole, the modern classical like thing is, is quite, it's a very small yeah, genre. Yeah, exactly. But um, if you get it, like you yeah. really get it. You yeah. know, it's, it's, it's very glass kind of thrown glass, in there too. Yep, for sure. Um, there's some of that. And I think those are the kind of guys that like, if we circle back to the opening of part one, that like John Cale was drawing from, right? Like he, you know, the atonal kind of thing. So it's like a funeral march at the end. And it's kind of takes you on this like logical conclusion. The only place you can be at the end is this sort of funeral march. I just said, I'm kind of exhausted by this point. And I can understand why people can't understand or can't handle this record. Like if you're not ready and if you like truly like absorb this, like it can, you know, I get it. Like I'd like to listen to this in a sweat lodge. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fucking. Do cool. some, do some, you know, do some mushrooms or you know, do do some nice hallucinogens that don't make you throw up too much. Yeah, and uh, listen to this in the dark, maybe with a couple of your friends that really dig this record as yeah. well, and like. That those are the kind of my best psychedelic experiences are <laughs> are with good music and good people. Sure. Yeah. And and having um not just for uh fun, but you want some type of experience out of yeah. it. That's the whole point. You want we're always as as human beings, we're always like reaching for some type of like spiritual experience that we can't get here. We need something else to get there. Sure. Um so like music can do it, trance can do it, dance can do it, drugs can do it. Yeah. Um those are probably about it. Yeah, <laughs> that, sure, that, sure. That I can think of, but I mean, uh, the most productive ways are through probably ritual and you know meditation. The only thing I can get you is uh, divorced uh, Uncle Dan, Godfather Mansion sauna. If we could get access to that, we can have a, like a low rent. Uh, I was thinking about making my own sauna in the backyard. Yeah, I. If you figure out how to do that, let me know because I might pay you to build one here. Because I, I'd be well. I've got that uh, little shed. You got thing the little shed. I'm gonna make, but yeah. I've got a a little wood burning stove in there you know and then you go in there and then you go jump in the snow and just avoid the dog shit and you're okay <laughs> that's the key avoid the dog shit yeah yeah, yeah. no i just uh, there's a lot more i could probably say about aeon but it's just uh, i don't know this is just a it's a great song it's awesome yeah. you know um it's it's not as immediate as locust star you have you gotta really you know lock in but uh it, it goes some cool places so so let's get into it. We're going to hear uh, from the band talking a little bit about the uh, artwork after we hear from Albert from Decibel. If you're into SideQuest drives, make sure you hang on to this. Yeah, yeah. And again, I will thank, uh, it's kind of a special shout out to Albert because Albert kind of helped um, us actualize some of this episode a little he, bit. He's always got a good, um, so, like sometimes you, he throws you something, you're like, what? 
Yeah. It's like, oh, that was the right that was the right call. Sure. Well, even not just this, but like just the fact that he got me, you know, I reached out to Steve and Scott through Facebook, which is kind of, you know, I don't know how much bands are on their personal feed, you know. Sure. Yeah. And and I kind of told Albert what I was trying to do here and he he got me in touch with Aaron Turner, got me Steve's email yeah. to like reach out. So you know, yeah, he helped out he with the, the hard heavy. So it's like yeah, he facilitates gives, the, gives us that little things. token of legitimacy to be like, oh, okay, we'll talk to these guys. That's yeah, cool. yeah. So we appreciate. And it. I think he knew what I was trying, what we were kind of trying to pull off, and, yeah. and that was really cool. So um, just kind of shout out to him. He he said uh, he enjoys listening to our shows when he goes grocery shopping. Yes, there you go. Hey, <laughs> Requiem Mail Podcast, we're 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 there to get you through the the pain of grocery shopping. So well, with with our last finished show, it's it's probably taking about it's a good. Month to yeah, finish, it's gonna be but, a yeah. lot of grocery shopping. Yeah. Go to Costco, man. Um, this is going to take forever. You know, if he wants to ever get through that thrash metal series, he's going to really have to to work hard. So we've going to uh, go from there into the interview uh, with artwork. Then we got Strength of Fates, Become the Ocean, Aeon. Then we're going to come out and talk a little bit about uh, Pierce Neurosis. So enjoy. When people talk about Through Silver and Blood, they rightly talk about the fact that it was kind of a coming out party in terms of visibility for Neurosis. Having signed a relapse after spending time on Alternative Tentacles, it really exposed the band to a new audience. But what I think a lot of people fail to recognize is what that in turn did for Relapse. Back in 1996, Relapse was still a label regularly releasing Mortician material. And sure, they had the release entertainment sub-label, but that always felt like more of a boutique thing that lacked any real ability for meaningful crossover into the metal world. But within two years of Through Silver and Blood's release, Relapse had now either signed or released material from Today is the Day, Brutal Truth, Unsane, The Dillinger Escape Plan, Coalesce, um, and they weren't far away from uh, releasing something from Converge, actually, either. So I think it's important to note that while it, while this record obviously changed the landscape for Neurosis as a band that had a real connection to the metal world, it also really impacted Relapse as a label that people thought of more than just another metal label. But I know, Mark, you wanted to ask, speaking of kind of the construction of this, Mark's going to probably tell you, but he was working at Relapse actually right when you guys got yeah, signed in 96 so. i remember getting the the sidequest drives of the artwork sidequest <laughs> drives yeah yeah and we made that we made that artwork ourselves with a, a primitive um macintosh computer whatever probably photoshop one yeah probably. or whatever yeah right like it was like if, if you wanted to render uh, a filter or a plug plug-in i guess they call them now on on the on the very small low-res image you you'd have to go like make lunch waiting for that filter to yeah i used to finish, for gaussian blurs i'd go smoke a cigarette and come back exactly <laughs> yeah was the was the process fairly collaborative with everyone or was anyone kind of more technically savvy or was everybody kind of yeah, kind we of in all the process? go in man like i i I bought the computer. I bought a, I think it was a power Mac 8,100 or something like that. Like it mm -hmm. was like my first kind of personal computer purchase. And we, we took it to the studio with us while we were recording. And that's where we were working on the artwork. You know, we bought a scanner 
and we bought a SyQuest drive and a bunch of SyQuests. I think they were the 50 megabyte ones then. And uh, <laughs> when they upgraded to the 100 megabyte ones, we were blown away. <laughs> um, or was it 44 and 88, something weirder like that. But um, yeah, no, we were all sitting there taking turns, like working on the image because we were teaching ourselves the Photoshop program. We didn't have any training or knowledge of it. We were just screwing around. Were the uh, the cover images were those fairly intentional, or was that kind of what, what was the idea behind behind the cover? Was did you guys have like an idea you were setting out for, or was this you you kind of like it kind of came as you were putting it together? Because it seems very intentional to me now in retrospect. I kind of think it came together. You I remember? think so. I think we we didn't we definitely didn't have that part figured out. We I think we had some artwork or some you know. We photos. had that mask image, like the mask yeah. image. Mm -hmm. But where did that even come from? Like it was from uh, the front cover of a book. I, okay, I, I, I had somewhere. Um, it's a but, Roman. It's a Roman mask. It's a uh, some historical book. And then Pete, okay. our our visuals guy, um, I think he had the book with the um, with the snakes and skeletons of snakes, and it wasn't two intertwining like that it was one that he flipped the image and moved one over the other and created that um but all of that was happening just in the little room off to the side while we were recording you know yep. and that was yep. tricky because he had to figure out how to make the snake appear to be above and below itself you know and cutting cutting out the layers and then adding the blood blood to the eyes just to kind of make the title more literal yeah. Yeah. Speaking of that, what is there is there an explanation for the title that you guys want to discuss, or is that something you want to kind of leave to interpretation? I think we could leave that one for interpretation. Okay. okay. It but reminds the, me, I just got done teaching the uh, my Bob Dylan unit with my rock history class, and my kids are always frustrated because they'll be like, "What does this song mean?" I'm be like, "I don't know. Bob Dylan <laughs> won't tell you either." <laughs> and they, they yeah. kinda, I, I think they kind of dig that. They're like, "Oh, okay, you know." Yeah, hard, here, hard kids, here's a hard brain. Gonna, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's not nuclear standing. war. It's just a hard yeah. brain. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, you know, funny you mentioned that because I was thinking the other day about how I, I believe that's there's a new poet, Yannicka uh, Stuckey, who is uh, described as an ecstatic poet. Uh, Third Man Records put out his book, and I was thinking back on that. And I've read only a couple other poets that I think are ecstatic poets, and I believe that Hard Rain is going to fall as an ecstatic poem. That's like mm -hmm. total trance state, stream of consciousness, mystical uh, wisdom in that yeah, song. Without a doubt, I, I I split the class up into three, and one third gets to analyze the lyrics to Only a Pawn in the Game, another does Only uh, with God on Our Side. And then the poor third group gets hard rain and they're always just like, I could just see their faces. And I eventually I come over and I'm like, okay, let's, let's talk about some context, Cuban missile crisis. And then they go, Oh, you know, and they, I said, and again, I don't know, but yeah. run with it. <laughs> you, know? So, you know, I mean, these poor kids didn't think they were doing poetry analysis in a rock history class, but Hey, screw them. You know, exactly. it's good for them.
gearing into through silver more specifically when you guys made this record did you guys feel like you had any musical contemporaries that were making similar kind of music or did you feel like you were in an island unto yourself i mean i've heard you mention maybe like thinking that maybe ministry or skinny puppy or industrial metal people might be india or or did it really or was it not maybe until like Isis and Converge and some of those bands kind of crest it in the, the late 90s where you're like, oh, okay, well, there's there's others like us or who we can hang out with or whatever, you know? I, I guess, did you know that you were alone or did you feel like you were part of something? We were musically pretty aware of how alone, uh, like how we were the, the, the odd band on any bill. And that's mm-hmm. because uh, we weren't alone in terms of our sort of um, scene of of other, you know, like we were part of a whole cool DIY punk youth culture that was very vibrant and um, a lot of a lot of time spent with a lot of people that were really important to us were part of that scene, even though they were playing much more straightforward punk rock music, you know, but musically it was pretty, pretty clear that we were outsiders and uh, we were playing music that was not for everyone else, you know? Cause I think Steve, I've read somewhere where you talked about how like even journalists from like maximum rock and roll were kind of like, eh, we're, we're kind of done with you guys. Now you're not part of what we want to be <laughs> yeah. writing about. Well, and so it was like a weird, like you guys, didn't know where to go maybe that's what i'm kind of curious about yeah i mean so i mean yeah so we you know we came from obviously the diy punk scene in the bay area and that is that that actually is who we are that's formed exactly to what we do to this very day but there did become a point where musically some people came along with us for the ride like our closest friends or an open-minded people but a lot of people were like, what the, like the second we got keyboards, like, you know, I don't know. I don't know how that's not punk to have keyboards. I and mean, what about killing joke and the stranglers? Yep. But, but people were like, what the fuck faith no more, you know, or like, <laughs> like, like really kind of like they only wanted the hardcore, you know, and they weren't open-minded enough to take it with us. And, and we were way too weird for the metalheads because we weren't doing jigga jiggas and guitar solos. And it was a really weird time. And we were, I think we were uh, not, you know, we were too human and not mechanical enough for the kind of like uh, second wave industrial uh, stuff. So, you know, we kind of hoped to find somebody out there somewhere that liked us, but we were really alienated. And that when you mentioned Maximum Rock and Roll, we were in England and we had signed to Alternative Tentacles Records. I, I, this was um, Souls at Zero Enemy. I don't remember exactly which tour it was. And Tim Yohannan, the main maximum role guy and a, a guy we were friendly with, friendly with enough to like have basketball competitions with, was like, no, you guys can't advertise in our magazine because you're progressive rock. You're like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I hear like, a little owner of <laughs> and stuff. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I fucking Ouch. hate you. uh, i'm just kidding uh exactly i mean jason likes yes but uh 
There's nothing wrong with Prague Rock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that can be debated. But, um, <laughs> I guess I think of like King Crimson in stuff. I, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll take them. I'll take them as the exception. It, yeah, well, it depends on which album we're talking about. But um, King Crimson Red. There, we'll go red. There is, we'll yeah. go red. But uh, discipline. Uh, yeah. Lark's tongue. Lark's tongue. Uh, Singular yeah. band. Yes. Mm-hmm. There you go. We felt. We definitely felt that we didn't have a home, and so our whole. I mean, that's why I think Guar was the first band to ever take us out as a support act. And as, and as ridiculous as that might seem, like in this day and age, that was our only chance to play in front of people that weren't just going to show up for us, you know, based on whatever we had done in the years previous. And, uh, and that was huge. And so we went and played in front of, you know, uh, 1,500 people a night wanting to uh, get blood and cum sprayed all over their face uh, by monsters. Yes. Um, and really, what we learned then is, you know what? We're not gonna we're not gonna win the crowd, but we're gonna find the few freaks in the back that were looking for something and didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And with that, that that's why we embarked on later things like Pantera and Ozfest and and things like that. Is if we can just find those few freaks, I mean, we all know what it's like to be the young person and you, 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 we're lucky to have grown up in the Bay area where there was something to find and latch onto in the, in the local community. But, you know, people out in Indiana or, uh, you know, we're, we were in Northern Michigan and we basically had to just listen to european death metal you know what i mean to find anything and that, there was nothing around us you know yeah so you know so to so to go with any sort of act that had any sort of reach was meant that maybe we'll find those people looking for something deeper you know mm. and i to this day i think and i think noah would agree that we we love playing these uh pop festivals in europe almost more than we like playing ones that all the bands are kind of uh analogous because you've got that chance of finding somebody totally unsuspecting. I think you guys are interesting in that. I know a lot of people who aren't into metal at all, but they listen to you for whatever that is. You know, they, they find something that go, I mean, you guys transcend kind of the limitations of what a lot of people think that genre is supposed to be. And so I can see how playing those type of festivals could be really appealing because those people exist. Yeah. I mean, my first time seeing you, I don't know about Mark, it was seeing you guys open for Pantera when I was in high school. And, you know, I was I was into it, but I, wouldn't, I was still too young to process everything. But I remember seeing you guys open for Pantera, and I believe it might not have been the same show, but I saw I Hate God open for Pantera, and everybody was booing except for us. We were in the very back and we were losing our shit over I Hate God and we realized, oh, we probably don't belong with these Pantera fans. <laughs> but we didn't know that at the time. We were just high school kids going to see Pantera and Deftones were there and I Hate God. You know. But like, we were almost more interested in what was coming before Pantera and that's that was a big like light bulb moment. You know, That was the eternal thing with us for years. We went for the opening band and left. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we we were those freaks in the back. There you go. So you got right us. On. 
That was Aeon, Become the Ocean, and Strength of Fates. and um, Not the Duel of Fates. Not the Duel of Fates. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, no, that's... Uh, John Williams. I No, no, I just did the... I, I don't remember what, how it goes, but that was like the only memorable thing from that movie. That was the the, the lightsaber battle with Qui-Gon Jinn and uh, Darth Maul. That's where Maul gets cut in half, right? That had choir in it, too. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Can you think of anything that came from Rise of Skywalker? No. Unfortunately, nope. the last Star Wars Williams score that you can't remember a single sco- note out of it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, you're right. I so, mean, luckily, we have this neurosis record to take the pain away. Yeah. Um, where we want to go from here is be a very short set because we got a very long kind of piece kind of sort of coming up here. But um, I felt that, you know, there were people that. I think we need it to probably talk to to pull this episode off. You know, we heard from Bill from Mass, and I think that was kind of cru- crucial. Um, I reached out to Jacob Bannon, emailed him and stuff. I thought he would have been kind of a, a good linchpin because I think there's a lot of converge neurosis kind of crossovery stuff. And Steve, especially emotional, Steve's been on some yeah. some of those records and things like that. But uh, it is what it is. You know, the people are busy. People don't check their emails. But luckily, I was able to get in touch with Aaron and. Um, Aaron, uh, of course, from Hydrahead. Uh, I think Hydrahead has a lot of the spirit of neurosis, and he talks a Absolutely. little bit about that. Yeah. You know, the 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 DIY, the you know, you know. I'm not. Uh, Aaron will tell you in a second. Um, and then, but I think from a personal sort of angle, like ISIS helped me. I think I mentioned this in part one. Sort of figure out how to like access neurosis in a way. Um, yeah. Because ISIS, I kind of started to get into in college when I was really starting to explore and expand my musical horizons a little bit more. And I think I was finally mature enough to be able to, like, through ISIS, get counteractively, like, really start to absorb neurosis, you yeah, know? Yeah, um, they might They might be one of the, the only bands out of that era that really kind of... Um, really push stuff like they i'm i was i'm still surprised at how far they kind of yeah went with everything on ipecac and yeah pushing out of that whole genre like them and well they um, got a song on I, I even talked about it but i think it might be a bonus thing that we'll throw up for patreons about friday night lights uh yeah. i asked them like <laughs> you know like how the fuck did you get like a one of the most famous sequences of that whole show it's a isis song you know yeah. like, that's somebody on that show was was hip to something you know but yeah they definitely they, they carried on that tour them and i think uh Keelhaul carry on that neurosis torch pretty well. Sure. Out of all Pelican of those. too. You yeah. Know, those, uh, but as far as like stuff that I, I think I, st- I still have some. Sure. Connection yeah, I'm just to. talking about bands that kind of blew up oh, with the, that there sound. There was a ton yeah. that did. Yeah. Yeah. The neurosis sound was, that was yes. like a term for like a little while, you know, whatever you want to make of that. I don't know. Which in, in <laughs> retrospect, I, it's not as like obvious as we thought it was. No. No, the more I pull apart neurosis and like ISIS and and even like you know Jezu and and some of those, they're all doing their own kind of thing. Yeah, they're just they know? had kind of the same mindset about ideas of repetition and uh, kind of singular visions, but they didn't really none of them sounded like. Is it fair to say that like the same kind of the uh, the same misnomer of like the peaceful three? Yes, it's kind of a, it's something journalism journalists yeah. put together like. Yeah, the Peaceful Three never, they weren't even on this label at the same time yeah, together. Yeah. So it, they're just like conveniences of, of. But I think there's something that is connected between those bands in a weird way, but they're all completely singular and completely doing their own, like, version yeah, there's, of it. You, you, know? you, can, you can create a, a narrative there. Yeah. But there wasn't, there wasn't really one. But it was like, 
okay, the British doom thing. Here's, yeah. here's three guys that are doing a different take on that. Sure. Sure. I mean, you could say the same thing, you know, God flesh and neurosis or something like that. Yeah. You know, like, I don't think they're the same thing at all. I think if you're clever yeah. enough, you can, you can make a connection between anything. Yeah, sure. Well, if, we if try- anybody watches, Hey, we tried that in part one, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> if we'll he, see if it worked. If anybody watches YouTube, there's people that make careers of talking about fucking Lord of the Rings shit and pontificating about superhero shows and shit. Like, oh, yeah. People really like to find connections. That's, that's a, a fundamental human thing. Sure. Is well, to that's find, where conspiracy theories come from, is, is trying to like Well, it comes make... from the CIA, but the term. Uh, but Davos, what are you, Jesus, inhaling? He's cocaine? A, yeah, we, I got to leave my cocaine at home, and yeah. I'll leave it on the floor for him. <laughs> um, yeah, I've lost my train of thought now. Uh, CIA? I don't know. You're, uh, you're doing... No, we like as, as humans, we like to find patterns. Yes. And we like to see... Um, just it's like a, a an innate survival mechanism that if we're like you know in the the Serengeti and we see something that looks like a predator we get the fuck out yeah. or we we need to see that kind of stuff and I think it makes it makes us make the world make sense if we can find patterns and things to make can see like stuff that doesn't seem like it should have a rhyme or reason have a rhyme or reason yeah that makes sense it's just like an innately yeah. human thing yeah for sure yeah well said so. uh Let's get into it. We got Aaron Turner, and then just for the sake of of acknowledging it, uh, I think you know, especially early ISIS, kind of sometimes match that uh, rage and, and fury that you know neurosis kind of has as well. Eventually, as you mentioned, ISIS kind of goes off and really sort of carves their own, yeah, almost more mogwaiish and slintish, and you know they're kind of exploring some of those kind of yeah. aspects a little bit more. I think that might have been the. Th- Third or fourth um, decibel illustration I did was ISIS. Was ISIS? Oh, it was just Aaron Turner screaming at the guy in the yeah, face. Yeah, <laughs> that's very cool. Yeah, that would be cool for Aaron to know that. Um, Back with the the shaved head and the sideburn. Yeah, Aaron he remembered. I think he remembered Eclipse when I asked him about okay. it. Okay, you know? and I I got to uh, I did him with Old Man Gloom. Oh, recently, yeah, perfect. Uh, with the, the the bearded long hair version. So, but probably because we did interviews with Hydra head bands back when he yeah. you know back in those days and stuff. So, but yeah. So for that, we have from their debut uh, EP, uh, the Mosquito Control EP from '98, uh, Poison Eggs, which is ooh, great song. So enjoy the uh, Aaron Turner interview, Poison Eggs. Then we'll come back and say our goodbyes and uh, close out through Silver and Blood. What your kind of earliest connection with neurosis as both kind of a fan and maybe like a, a young musician, you know, like where you first kind of came into contact with them and maybe like early influences that you could start to glean from them, I guess. Sure. Um, <clears throat> this was uh, this was in the pre-internet days, so all music at that point was word of mouth and um I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which was a, a fairly small town, and there was very little uh, going on in terms of an underground scene. Uh, there was there was a number of people who were very active, and it was very close knit. But as I said, it was quite small, and shows were few and far between. Mm-hmm. And most of the music that my friends and I encountered was handed down from some of the uh, older folks in the scene, as well as older siblings. Um, and so that was where uh, neurosis first came to my attention is uh, there was a guy who was part of our circle of friends who was always wearing a neurosis shirt. It was the classic yin-yang design. Oh, yeah. And and I remember seeing that before actually hearing their music. And 
after talking about neurosis with him, uh, it turned out he was one of the guys who really just liked the punk era of neurosis. And he was like, oh, yeah, he was like, oh, new neurosis is no good. And, <laughs> and by new neurosis, at that point, he meant anything from like uh, souls at zero souls, on. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I kind of ignored that that little nugget from him there. And I ordered Enemy of the Sun, um, you know, regardless of his advice or <laughs> I should say his warning to stay sure. away. Yeah, and I remember the day it came in the mail, and I put it on my parents' stereo, and I just laid on the couch and listened to it, and let it wash over me, and it had an immediate impact. Um, at that point, I was getting into hardcore and punk, but I was still very much a, a metal kid at heart. I really liked things that were dark and heavy, and and more oriented towards metal. And Neurosis seemed to be just about the darkest and heaviest thing I'd ever heard at that point. Uh, and I quickly realized that my friends, um, you know, warning about new neurosis not being good was completely false. <laughs> um, shortly thereafter, there was a band from Santa Fe called Logical Nonsense who were on Alternative Tentacles. Oh, yeah. uh, okay. And they, they did a tour with neurosis and they all came back with uh, Enemy of the Sun tour merch. And I remember it being a big deal when a band from our hometown had left and gone on tour and I had gone on tour with Neurosis, so that was, again, where, you know, this wider world was touching our small scene and had a pretty Mm -hmm. big impact on where we were at. Um, And at that point, I was still in high school. I had not found anybody to be in a band with. I mean, several of my friends and I messed around, but we didn't have a drummer or a bass player amongst us, so it was basically like a guitar player and a couple of people who wanted to be singers, so there was nothing really to work with there. Um, but I left, uh, I left New Mexico after graduating high school and moved to Boston. And that was where I really started trying to form, uh, bands for the first time in any real sense. And Neurosis was certainly one of the primary influences I was considering at that point. Their music had meant a lot to me. Um, and being able to finally see them, uh, after moving to the East coast had a big impact. Um, I remember the first time I saw them was before through silver and blood came out. Uh, but not long, I think it was sort of at the tail end of their touring for enemy of the sun, but, um, they were already playing material from through silver and blood and they were doing their tribes of neurot set, uh, after the neurosis set itself was completed. And I saw them at a, a club on uh, Lansdowne Street in Boston, and it was—I think—I think it was an 18-plus show. I was only 17, but somehow I got in and was very thrilled by this. Yeah. The, um, and it just—you know—it was a small club, not a huge audience, and the show left an indelible impact on me. The visuals, the intensity of the performance. Um, the transition from the sort of more traditional band approach to the more abstract tribes of neurot set at the end, all of that really just, you know, uh, it, it sunk in and it, and it, it opened up a doorway for me where I could see that a band could be more than a band. It was more than just a group of dudes playing guitars and rocking out. I mean, it was really a full experience in every sense of the word. And, uh, you know, that, that, led to me becoming even more devoted to their music and kind of delving into their 
world and, and, and realizing that there was also this whole set of ethics that went along with it, this, uh, this very, uh, familial approach to doing things and, um, you know, deeply embedded in the, uh, the DIY mentality and all of that, um, had a lot to do with how I formed the label and how I chose to operate as a band member and, um, obviously the music itself also had an impact. My next question was like the influence that Neurosis kind of directly had on bands like Isis or Sumac or, or just really the sonic kind of landscape that I really feel like you guys with Hydrahead, especially like you, you sort of operated a really interesting niche. You know, I remember this is right when I was kind of starting to get, you know, involved with Eclipse and I was starting to work at a record store. So I was getting service from Hydrahead and just really like, the 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 eclectic nature and sort of the art aesthetic, you know, both the the cover and like how unique a lot of those bands were. Like, I don't know, is that somehow connected to some of the things that you glean from like seeing Neurosis and thinking about Neurosis and kind of their approach, or uh, is that like a, a, yeah. a step too far? Okay. No, no, not at all. That was definitely a facet of it. Uh, I mean, going back to, I know we're talking about G Silver and Blood, but going back yeah. to Enemy of the Sun, I remember looking at the cover that. John Yates did for that and really appreciating the design uh, aspect of it. Um, and it was clear to me that Neurosis had a visual presentation that was very important to them. And that um, was something that was also important to me with Hydrahead. Uh, I definitely wanted to have a label that was uh, visually cohesive and paid a lot of attention to those um, graphic elements of what we were doing. And, um, you know, it wasn't so much their graphics specifically that were inspiring to me. It was more just that they had a totality of their vision. Mm -hmm. And it was very clear that every aspect of what they did from their live show to their recordings, to their album sleeves, to their merch, all came from this very strong aesthetic sense of what they wanted and that they wanted it to be this very unified presentation. And that was definitely the approach I wanted to have with Hydrahead and also with Isis, where it wasn't just kind of this scattered thing. It was very much, um, you know, uh, as I said, a cohesive vision of presentation from top to bottom where every single aspect of it was thought out thoroughly. Certainly they weren't our only point of reference, but it was a strong one. And there was, an, mm -hmm. there was another aspect of what they were doing, which I touched on earlier, where there was this very familial vibe to what they were doing, where they brought the same people on the road all the time. Um, and later when they started Neurot, um, they would tour with bands and then subsequently release records by them. And it seemed like it was very much oriented towards this uh, underground family of people who all had at least in some ways a common vision and, and common interests and common needs. And that was also what we were trying to foster with Hydrahead. A lot of our bands toured together. ISIS toured with a lot of the bands on Hydrahead. Um, and, you know, that idea that you work with people you trust and you work with people where there is uh, a mutual belief in what each other is doing uh, and all of it is built on this on this foundation of family and uh, friendship. Uh, that to me was very important, and certainly a part of that uh, is what I learned from kind of watching Neurosis from afar and then getting to know them later when we toured with them. Um, 
when various projects of mine released records on Neurot, uh, and also when Hydrahead was able to do some some smaller scale vinyl releases with them. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I forgot you guys kind of had some of those those kind of personal connections and stuff between the two of you guys. Um, yeah, there was, there was a lot of overlap over the years, um, and it actually continues to this day. So, you know, again, that kind of just points back to what I was talking about, where these kind of connections that you make with people on a personal level end up having a big impact on um, on the creative life and vice versa. Sure. I mean, I definitely, when I started kind of thinking about putting the show together and I talked to Albert from Decibel, who kind of really helped me give me some emails and kind of get the ball rolling, you were the first name that like I kind of thought of outside of Steve and Scott and those guys, because I was uh-huh. like, you know, I mean, the fir- I'll be honest, the first time I saw Isis, you guys helped me get back into neurosis. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> I heard, I'm a little bit younger than you. I graduated high school in 97. So when I heard through Silver, like I got it, but I didn't. I wasn't like yeah. in that like right place. And then like, yeah. a couple years later, you know, I heard, um, you know, first you know Celestio and Mosquito Control. You know, I, I started to hear that stuff, and then it got me interested in that sound. And then I counter, I, I kind of started to go backwards and go, oh, okay, now I, now I'm getting neurosis uh, through Isis almost. So it was kind of a cool circular motion that I went backwards from that and. I guess my, my next question would be is, you know, you talked about the impact on Hydrahead, but obviously there's a direct musical connection to from Neurosis into what you guys did originally with Isis and what you've done with, with other bands through the years. What what kind of things were you kind of taking from Neurosis? Because there, you guys are always kind of lumped together. There's this kind of weird, you know, connection that you guys will probably always have, you know, and, but from metal historians and, and, and journalists and things like that. So... I guess, like, speak to them. You know, what is the, the connection that they had on you guys musically uh, besides just the aesthetics? Right. Um, well, there was a, a number of things. As I said, you know, we we were <clears throat> coming from the realm of, of hardcore and, uh, you know, at that kind of at the forefront um, in certain ways, the the harder heavier aspects of metal were also there in the background and for me that was also as i mentioned earlier one of the big things that drew me to neurosis they were clearly coming from a punk background and a punk mentality but their music was in many ways very metal Uh, you know it was not fast the fast-paced punk that they started with and the fact that they were using these really slow tempos and tuning down and using these really dissonant chords um, was very, uh, it was a very potent combo for me because it kind of took what I loved about the metal that I, that I grew up on and just pushed it to a really, um, to a really dark and experimental extreme. And um, <clears throat> their use of texture within their music was also really important to me. The fact that there was a lot of samples incorporated, but also just the way that the instruments uh, worked together. Often it was more important, uh, the rhythm and uh, almost the feeling and the atmosphere was more important than anything having to do with harmony. And uh, there was also this willingness they had to kind of dissolve their structures and just have them morph into these walls of just enveloping noise, basically. 
that was really satisfying for me as well. And that was part of what led me to, just, uh, you know, a deeper interest in electronic and ambient and noise music was that, you know, uh, that was present in what they were doing. And there was, there was times when there was a lot of space and in within the songs and, uh, you know, they never rushed anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, all of that had, uh, an impact on me as a songwriter and it was also, important for to varying degrees for the other members of ISIS as well. I think, um, you know, when we started, there was a, there was a few bands who were kind of the, the, uh, the common ground for all of us. Neurosis was one. Godflesh was another. Swans yeah. were another. Uh, Melvin's early helmet. Um, so it was kind of a cross between the, the realm of doom and crust and maybe some of the, the AMREP noisy stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I'm fine with the fact that, you know, we were, we were compared to them and continue to be associated with them. And it's undeniable that, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have been the band that we were and the band that we became without having had them as pathfinders, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of leading the way, and uh, I I learned a lot from from them, not just musically, but as I said, also from a more practical sort of administrative aspect. Um, and I think it would be hard to find a young band that comes out with their own completely unique and fully formed aesthetic. And the fact that we uh, used much of what Neurosis was doing as our template, I think, set us up in a good way. I mean what what better band to draw influence from than a band who you know continually pushed themselves were very clearly unique um and and had a willingness to experiment i mean i would much rather have been taking pointers from a band like that rather than you know a whole set of bands that were just content to recreate what had come before them absolutely uh, so, yeah, I feel like that was a very good that was a very good learning experience for us. Yeah, and it seems like that in hindsight as you kind of were talking and putting some of those pieces together, it seems like Neurosis kind of had this like patron saint quality to a lot of the the sort of Hydrahead Boston sort of scene, you know, obviously, you know, your Cavens and your Converges and and a lot of those bands like even though they're all doing different things, you can almost trace back like a a Venn diagram and you can definitely put neurosis there and, and the swans and you know some of those bands you kind of mentioned so it's it's interesting yeah. how different bands took lessons from neurosis but kind of ran in different directions yeah and i mean that's always the thing that's always the interesting thing about music and with any band you look at their roots and where they came from and then you can trace that into how they became their own unique and influential entities mm-hmm. uh and i and i definitely think that neurosis purposely fostered uh, and helps, you know, kind of um, usher new bands into wider awareness by choosing who they took on tour and choosing who they released records for on Neura. And I think that that was, um, I think that was a really important conscious move on their part as well. Uh, they were very aware that, you know, what they had had been built on the network that had supported them coming up. And then when they were in a position to help other bands in a similar way, they did so. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point. Coming out of that DIY kind of, you know, San Fran, you know, West Coast kind of punk crust scene, you know, 
So yeah, and they and they never, uh, you know, they never turned their backs on that, and I think that that's admirable because there's certainly been <clears throat> plenty of bands who have achieved similar levels of success and kind of just been content to ride on that without thinking about, you know, where they came from or how they got there. And Neurosis is kind of the opposite, even though they did tours with Pantera and Ozfest and things of higher profile and obviously gained a huge following of their own. They, they were always very adamant about fostering and, and sticking to the underground in terms of what they chose to support. Sure. No, it's a really great point. Um, you brought up tribes earlier. I'm curious, like, you know, with like projects like House of Low Culture and some of those things, is that like where you got the first idea to do things like that? Or had you already kind of been in that realm or, or was it somebody else's idea? And, and I'm just kind of curious because Tribes of Neurot was such a weird, at the time when it came out in 96 there, right before Through Silver, that was like a really weird choice for a band to put out these kind of two comparative records, right? Kind of. I don't yeah. you know what I'm kind of hinting at here. I, yeah, I guess I didn't know if it, if it yeah, kind of inspired had, some of that. Or. Yeah, for sure. As I mentioned, that that show I saw of theirs, which must have been around 95 or 96 after the, the Neurosis set was done, they did probably a half-hour set or maybe more. That was a, a tribe set, and that definitely had a big impact on me because it just, I mean, you know, Steve for instance, dispensed with guitar entirely for a good portion of that set and was just experimenting with mic feedback through the PA and playing drums and, and Noah's electronics became a more um, forefronted part of the presentation and just seeing the band morph in that way um, was definitely inspiring for me uh, and just kind of their willingness to abandon audience expectations and just go where they felt like the music needed to go was also uh, really crucial for me because it set up this paradigm where you can do what you do and be aware of the fact that people appreciate this sort of core persona that you have, but you can also branch out and, and um, extrapolate on these sort of peripheral elements of what you do uh, just for the sake of your own creative impulses and some of your audience may be willing to follow you and some not, but the important thing is that you're remaining true to your own needs as a, as a musician. And that was definitely inspiring for me. Um, I was able to, to recognize that you didn't need to just adhere to one thing. And if you had interests that kind of lay outside of whatever your, you know, your main um, operation was you you could and should and and needed to follow those impulses. Um, so you know it was again in, in that way uh, an example of how to live creatively. Um, and then just also talking more stylistically, I did appreciate those those noise aspects of what they were doing. And as I mentioned before, that the use of texture texture and dissonance was very interesting yeah. to me um and it kind of overlapped to some degree with their signing to relapse and relapse having that whole release and release yep. wing of yep. what they were doing and that was definitely some of my um you know some of the stuff that i was exposed to because of the connection to neurosis and because of the connection to relapse that helped open helped open up a lot of doors for me as well yeah, it's interesting. I brought it. Uh, some of our longtime listeners on the podcast know that I 
I talk about like being a sophomore in high school and wandering into the record store that Chris um, was working in. And he was playing some, you know, crazy death metal at the time. And that was, that was, you know, I knew Cannibal Corpse and some of that like mainstream stuff in like 95. And I kind of started talking about some things. I went in there to order Tiamat Wild Honey. And he was just looking at this high school kid, again, pre-internet, going, how, you know, how the, how the hell do you know about Tiamat Wild Honey? You know, he was kind of suspicious of me, like, who who are you, you know? Because him and Mark were older than me. They graduated when I was in eighth grade. So we actually never were in high school at the same time. But, uh, that moment we started talking, I walked out of the record store and Chris handed me, he's like, here, this is kind of cool. And he handed me the UHF VHF comp that release and relapse, uh, had put uh-huh. out. And I went home and, you know, obviously I was paying more attention to the stuff that had the nuclear blast and relapse stuff that was, was on the thing. But I remember putting on the other one and hearing like Masana and Merzbau and just as a sophomore trying to like figure it out. You know, like, I was like, this is yeah. really weird. Why are these kind of together? And, again, release didn't have, like, a gigantic impact on me. But, you know, I got into Trial of the Bow and, and, and some of these things probably because of, you know, neurosis and because of that comp and because of that relationship that Relapse had with release. You know what I mean? So it's interesting to hear your your take on that because I had a kind of a different take, you know, but at the same time it was influential, you know? yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I definitely, I mean, there were specific things too that I heard, uh, I heard about from neurosis directly that I ended up investigating crash worship being one of them. Uh, another band who was incorporating a lot of elements from noise and industrial music, uh, but also coming from a punk background, but the, you know, the end result was something that was outside any genre boundaries, basically, um, and so there were things like that along the way that really helped open up my perspective pretty broadly. And there was, there were certain things, of course, I discovered through other avenues, but all of it, um, you know, kind of filtered through and, and, um, you know, kind of coincided with this path that neurosis had been on for years. And, uh, in a certain way, all of these different interests that I had seemed to sort of, um converge under under the uh the you know the the whole uh what's I'm trying to think of what the best way to describe it was it's almost like neurosis is the perfect distillation of all these different interests that I had combined in one entity and uh it was also like music that I had always wanted to hear and didn't know existed and then when I finally encountered it I was like this is the perfect music this encapsulates everything that I need at this moment in my life. And I, I sort of look back on it as, in a certain way, as, as a potent discovery that's parallel to my first exposure to Metallica. And then before that, my first exposure to Jimi Hendrix. It was almost like that was the trajectory. It was like Hendrix, Metallica, Neurosis. And all those things were like these massive turning points for me as a, as a person and as a musician and as a guitar player. Yeah, and I think I think you hit on something like you know every metalhead who's like kind of in our age range remembers the first time they heard Metallica or I talk to Mark about it sometimes on the cast like I remember being in sixth grade and hearing all along the Watchtower on the radio and I just was like stunned I was just like staring at it and it was at the time yeah. where I would just sit with like my a blank cassette and it would be on record pause waiting for like stuff on the radio that I wanted to like hear. And it was same with Stairway to Heaven, which again is so innocuous now, like you don't even appreciate that song because it's whatever. But 
it's like you don't know something exists until you know it exists. And so yeah. I didn't know Stairway to Heaven existed until I heard it as a sixth grader. And I was like, whoa, what is this? Yeah. People are like, Stairway to Heaven, dude. You know, like you're like, yeah. oh, but, but, I, <laughs> but, but I just heard it for the first time, you know, and same with Jimi Hendrix and stuff. But yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting how there, there are those bands. And I think, yeah, you're right, Neurosis. You know, like I remember when I started to expand my my interest even a little bit outside of metal and like coming across stuff like, um, you know, like DJ Shadow introducing and like hearing that and being like, oh, this is like everything I kind of think I like about hip hop. But it's like literally in one place. And, you know, and just kind of having like, again, I didn't go on and be a hip hop artist or anything, but I just remember hearing records where like you felt like those people were into all the same stuff you were into, you know, and you just didn't realize it until you sit and listen to those records like they're on the same wavelength of like all my weird disparate interests in one place, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's cool. that neurosis was that kind of for you in a sense, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and just going back to their earliest, um, contact with them, as I said, listening to enemy of the sun was for me an immediately impactful experience. And I remember it distinctly. And then it also kind of set me up for being prepared to receive through silver and blood, which, you know, at, at that time when it came out for me again, was just the perfect record. And while I loved enemy of the sun, I felt like through silver and blood was just kind of an escalation of where they had been and a deepening of that vision and when I heard it again, it just sounded like the perfect music. And I remember having this experience also while, you know, uh, listening to Metallica in my headphones when I was 12, just thinking like, how did a group of humans come up with music that is so, um, utterly perfect. And that was the same way I felt when I heard through silver and blood, it was like, everything was meant, everything was in the place it was meant to be and it sounded otherworldly and uh it was hard to believe that you know just a group of people had made this thing yeah 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 because it almost seems like an exorcism in a sense you know like like a personal exorcism of all these guys just sort of like getting all of this raw emotion out and yet it's so still tuneful and listenable you know what i mean it's like it's so intense but yet you you're you're scared by it but you can't kind of stop listening at the same time almost you know yeah and this is more this is more of like a subjective interpretation of what was happening but for me the 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 art that has meant the most to me and has impacted me the most is always that which feels like it was something that existed already and has been mm -hmm. Um, channeled by a group of people that that's that's been kind of my approach to to songwriting is to try to find and form things that I feel like already existed and it's been up to me to just uh to act as sort of the the conduit for those things and that was how I felt about through silver and blood it seemed like it was um, a manifestation of something almost divine or spiritual and mm -hmm. you know those the, the the group obviously have uh have been careful uh about not placing any direct religious overtones or or um ideologies in in direct connection to the music but at the same time it also seemed to me that it, it was clear from uh, a listener standpoint that there was something spiritual and ecstatic about what they were doing and that you know the process of playing music for them was ritualistic and meditative and that was also that was also influential for me to to think about the fact that you don't just get up there and play your tunes you get up there 
in this certain kind of headspace, having prepared yourself for the experience and you pour every single thing you have into those moments of playing and you treat it as something sacred. And, you know, I think for a lot of people that could be pretentious or kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, treating something that a lot of people just consider entertainment as something more than that. But it is that for me. And that is probably another reason why Neurosis and Two Silver and Blood had such an impact because it was clearly an experience and it was something that went well beyond just having some, some tunes to rock out to. Sure. It's interesting you bring up that word pretentious because Mark and I, when we were putting some stuff together, we were kind of talking about like Neurosis is one of the rare bands that has earned pretentiousness. And and that's not like a backhanded compliment, but it's like some bands like they can afford to be or come off as pretentious because they've earned it. They put the work in and they're doing something that is kind of, like you said, at a higher plane musically and intellectually. And it's like Neurosis kind of like, and, and even I would put throw ISIS into that, like, there are some bands that sort of earn that, you know, and and so pretentious sometimes comes off as like a negative, but in a sense, like, I don't know. Do you know what I'm trying to say here? It's like, it's it's like it, it applies to them, yet like they exist outside of the term, you know. Well, like I, they supersede I, it, I guess. Um, I think I think the the thing that's interesting is that they obviously take what they do very seriously. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, that's something that could, <laughs> that could rub certain people the wrong way. That's true. Yeah. At the same time, I feel like there is, there is room for every type of music and every approach to music. And there is a type of experience that people can have as listeners that are completely valid in many different ways. Uh, However, I feel like neurosis serves a very particular purpose. And part of the reason it's so effective is because they take it so seriously. And I find that, you know, that's true of some other things I've really appreciated, like the Swans, for instance, or Diamanda Galas's early catalog. Like those are records in which it is clear that the people who have made them are utterly committed. And, and when they are immersed in their art making, that is the thing to which they have devoted themselves wholly. And I don't think that there's anything pretentious about that. I think it's just an active devotion to creative output. And for me, that happens to be the best way of going about playing music. Um, I mean, that doesn't apply to everything I've been involved with, but uh, for many of the things that are, are most crucial and dear to me, uh, I feel like that's the mindset I have to approach it with. And that is certainly something, again, I learned from watching Neurosis. They just, you know, they put every part of their physical, mental, spiritual selves into what they were doing. And that's why the music had such uh, an amazing potency. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. So maybe get rid of that term and maybe replace it with something <laughs> like passionate or, or something like that. Cause I think yeah. of like, like I'm a, I, I also teach film. I teach uh rock and roll history film and, and you know, like I, like I love like somebody like Andre Tarkovsky, but like, I also understand like to some people that's going to come off as right. It, it has a certain tone to it, but like to me, like he's doing the same thing with film that like say a band like neurosis is doing or whatever. And then there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it's some people aren't into that either. You know, like yeah. I think for some people, neurosis and, and maybe some of the bands you've been involved in are, are too raw or they're too primal or they're, they're, they're just going to like some places that not everybody's comfortable going all the time musically, you know, or, or from yep, an art I, aesthetic, you know? Yep. I understand that. And you know, that's again, going back to what I was talking about, how it was uh, a place for, 
yeah. yeah, there's a place for everything. But for me, um, you know, there are times when I want music to just function as a source of entertainment or something to, you know, uh, to kind of ramp up my energy level and, and, you know, dance around the house with my kid or whatever while we're making sure. dinner. But then there's also this need that I have for music to, you know, dig into the deepest elements of inner exploration and meaning of life and, and the connectivity of human experience. And that's to me where, where music takes on another level and another depth. Absolutely. I had, um, I had somebody when we were putting together our show a few years back for the thing that never sets, I had a friend of mine who's also a teacher who is not a metal head at all. She listens to country music and we were just kind of chatting and I was like talking to her about putting together this show. And I said, I was listening to this record when I was driving from visiting my parents back home is like a two and a half hour drive. So I listened to some that never sets like twice. And I was like, I was telling her how I, I got to this one song called falling unknown. And I, I almost had like a, like an experience. Like I just, like I was overwhelmed emotionally and she was like, what? Like, that's weird. And I said, yeah, just do yourself a favor. I said, go on your own, find a, find a room away from your kids and your husband and, and put, put this on headphones and just tell me what you think. I mean, it's not music. You're going to like that much. And she called me back up a few minutes later after, you know, what, 14 minutes later, whatever. And she's like, I actually cried. And I was like, uh -huh. awesome. You, yeah. you know, you're not a neurosis person. I mean, awesome. in like a, like it, it got you. And I was like, that's, that's what I kind of get out of music sometimes. And not everybody gets that, you know, as you said, you know, people listen for different reasons, but um, you know, it's like, they can take you there if you want to go there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that can, again, cross many different uh, genres. I mean, I feel like uh, Marvin Gaye record, what's going on is just as heavy as two silver and blood in an entirely different way. But again, sure. I feel like that's an artist who's digging very deeply into themselves mm -hmm. and is, you know, working to provide something that's a very unified vision. So again, those, those are the kind of something. Like yeah. That. Yeah. Those, you know, those are, digging in. Yeah. yeah. And those are the things that always appeal to me the most, whether, you know, whatever the, whatever the genre or, cross genres are that the people may be working in it's when the people have who are sure. making it have fully committed themselves that they're able to i i believe tap into something that really resonates for those who are willing to also spend the time to connect with it sure so i guess as we kind of wrap up here one one kind of final kind of thought on this i guess from a, a macro perspective is i guess the you know you've talked about it on a personal level but where do you see this as somebody that's been in the, the metal or the, the, the harder realm of music for a few decades, what's the legacy of or, or impact of Silver, you think, today, kind of looking back on it? Um, I mean, I can trace that in so many bands that have have shaped the modern metal landscape. Uh, I'm, I was thinking about this yesterday, and I've never had this confirmed for me, but I can't help but wonder now thinking about... Uh, the Sepultura record roots, if they hadn't uh, been listening to some neurosis. And I especially wonder now, because it's clear that uh, at least the brothers in that band, the Cavalera brothers were always interested in underground music. And mm -hmm. so, you know, that was a record that clearly changed metal in very many ways and some good, some bad, some bad. Yeah, um, absolutely. but, yeah. but it really brought about a whole new shift in music. And I, I wondered whether through silver and blood was part of 
um, you know, what set them off in that direction. I mean, clearly they had their, their, their roots in, um, you know, more traditional Brazilian music as well, but just the, the overall the confidence to do something like that, you know what or, I mean? Yeah. Or just like the idea of combining what they already had in their background in a new way, um, mm-hmm. you know, and just the timing of it, I couldn't help but wonder if that was part of where that came from. But then also thinking about bands like Mastodon, for instance, who clearly are have moved in a very different direction than Neurosis. Um, but that band has become massively influential in a lot of ways. And I know for a fact that those guys have been heavily influenced by Neurosis. Oh, sure. I've toured with them. Scott Kelly's been on a bunch of their records. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know from having spoken to them that that was a big part of their musical DNA. Um, same, uh, goes for ISIS and I, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to say what our impact has been, um, on a, on a broader scale, but I could certainly think of at least a handful of bands who seem to sort of follow in our wake and, and, and neurosis as well and, and have become influential bands in their own right. Um, so, you know, I, I, I mean, just thinking back to some of the last few times I saw Neurosis and seeing how many people were there, you know, literally thousands of people coming to see Neurosis, whereas the first time I saw them, you know, there was maybe 150 people at that show in Boston um, in 96 or whatever it was. So it's not necessarily to say that audience size um indicates the importance of a band but at the same time you know neurosis has been touring for multiple decades now and still continue to draw lots of people and you'll see in their audience there's a contingent of people who are you know in their 40s and 50s all the way down to people who are new fans of the band um so their legacy is not is not stuck in the past um uh, but I will say that I I look back on Two Silver as Two Silver and Blood as the band that kind of just launched them from this underground, very cult level band to this massively influential band that has now touched uh, you know has touched the mainstream in a variety of ways and also continued to propagate a bunch of other bands and and musicians and labels in the underground. Um, and Through Silver and Blood, in a certain way, I think is also a, a unifying record. I mean, there's a lot of people who will, um, you know, uh, disavow certain parts of Neurosis's catalog, but Through Silver and Blood seems to be a, a one of, uh, you know, maybe a couple of their records that are is an absolute unifier amongst their fans and also a unifier amongst people who are inhabiting very different circles. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of people who like neurosis who don't like anything else that has come from this world. So in that way, you know, they've, they've touched a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. And I think that's another testimony to the strength of their music and to the strength of that record.
This is Dan Lake, decibel contributor and author of USBM, A Revolution of Identity in American Black Metal. I'll make a, a bit of a disclaimer here. Um, I'm as devoted a Neurosis fan as you're likely to find, but uh, I wasn't listening back in 96 when Through Silver and Blood was released. Um, I wasn't listening in 99 <laughs> for Times of Grace. Um, but Neurosis were a foundational metal band for me. Um, I guess around 2001, 2002, I was still kind of hanging out in the doorway of metal with uh, bands like Faith No More and Tool. Um, I hadn't really committed uh, to liking metal. Um, but I think, if I remember correctly, I bought uh, Oceanic by the band Isis in 2003 uh, just because uh, Mike Patton had released it on his Ipecac Recordings label. Um, so I kind of fell in love with that record, uh, slowly, admittedly. Um, but I, I had read some review that said that um, Isis's music was some amalgamation of Converge and Neurosis. Um, and so through that, I, I, I kind of cast my net a little wider, um, and that's how I found Jane Doe uh, and Through Silver and Blood. Which, as an aside, it's kind of mind-blowing now for me to think in retrospect uh, that these three records, Oceanic and Jane Doe and Through Silver and Blood, uh, were kind of my true entry into metal. Uh, there's some, <laughs> some great records, uh, all three of them. Uh, but so, like, all these bands were, like, a big deal to me at the time. Uh, but that Neurosis record, picking up Through Silver and Blood without having ever heard Neurosis before. That record turned me inside out. Um, the I think the first thing, because, you know, I open up the CD and I, I I put the thing in to start listening, but it's it's the visuals that, that get to me first. Um, the CD, like, had this image of, like, this kind of indiscernible collection of bones. Um, and the, the booklet has, like, all these, like, bright weird abstract lo-fi images um uh with the the lyrics on them in in these kind of scrawled out almost like block letter with shadows it's it's a really interesting visual style um and plus the lyrics were had all the like it was all this kind of opaque confrontational poetry uh that i couldn't understand um, and then, you know, then the first song starts and it's that mechanized opening, but then with the tribal drums, it's like mysterious. Uh, it's, it's not even particularly in your face, uh, for a while, which is part of its allure, I think. Um, then, you know, that song, that, that title track just kind of blows up, uh, into something amazing, um, and then you get rehumanized, which is this whole new like non-musical dimension um, that I guess gets picked up again later on with "Become the Ocean." Um, but then the songs themselves um, are all these like massive, crazy layers of music swirling around, um, but they all work together somehow. Uh, there's this kind of symbiosis where each part kind of props up the others. Um, it's incredibly complex, and I, 
it's hard to see how how they fit it all together so perfectly. Um, anyway, like th- this was all totally different from from what I had been hearing before. Sure, ISIS, you know, had these long uh, and heavy songs, but none of that was anything close to the the kind of chaos. Uh, the, the stuff that was as primal as what Neurosis were doing. Um, in I guess in the context of other Neurosis records, Through Silver and Blood is kind of this difficult apex for them. Um, you know, they, they kind of emerged uh, from that their first record and, and kind of their second record um, as kind of a hardcore punk band but they were moving towards something kind of more elemental um during that process of making souls at zero that record souls at zero is a brilliant attempt at kind of uh kind of exploding the hardcore spirit out into new uh musical terrain um then, like, they had Enemy of the Sun, which was supposed to be an EP, but again, kind of the band's, like, outsized ambitions uh, blew that all out of proportion, uh, and it's amazing also, so it's it's great. Uh, and then then Through Silver and Blood is kind of this, this peak. Uh, they were, it's almost like they were pushing themselves, flogging themselves to climb off this, this mountain. Um, they were touring themselves to death. Uh, they were writing and performing this music that, you know, constantly laid them open and raw night after night. Um, it's like they took it as their mission, uh, to channel some kind of like, like, like personal awakening in devastation, uh, for each person who attended their shows. Uh, and and that kind of duty, that kind of mission is, it must be totally draining for the people involved and it was too much i mean they've said as much they've said that that period was just too much uh they had to find some way to to back off um and allow their own i guess their own humanity to have some space inside all of their music um and that's i think what they did later on uh through silver and blood is this like almost horribly perfect moment um, when the guys in Neurosis kind of surrendered like who they were, their, their, their flesh, uh, their, their emotional and, and spiritual makeup, uh, kind of for their audience, almost to feed on. Um, and you know, that situation wasn't healthy. It wasn't sustainable in any kind of long-term way. Um, it's kind of a miracle that the band even survived past it uh, to do other things, uh, to, to last this long. Um, I know that there are some people who feel like later records by Neurosis just don't have the same kind of impact. I, I will always disagree. I think that things like A Sun That Never Sets, um, Given to the Rising, even the, like The Eye of Every Storm, like these are journeys that I will always go on over and over again. Um, I I think it's selfish to expect that a band should kind of continually consume itself uh, so that you feel satisfied with the, the art you're listening to. Thank you, Mr. Daniel Lake for your kind comments there. Uh, Author recently of the U S black metal. 
Yes. Um, desk ball author and fellow teacher. So we're in the trenches together. Uh, math teacher? I believe so. Yeah, I believe I so. so. Okay. Um, yeah, we were chatting uh, a couple weeks ago when he sent me this testimonial. Oh, just two about- thankless jobs. Author and teacher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yep. I feel so, you. Yep. Um, I, if you call this a job, then I have a thankless uh, teacher slash uh, unpaid podcaster. I mean, everything I really care about. No, the the thing that I I, I do some handyman shit for people yeah. when I need money uh, that I that I can't get from art, and that's unfortunately the thing that people most commission me yeah. for. Yeah. Sure. Um. But, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's at least it's stuff you care about. Yep. Like you're not, you're not doing a job that you want to just fucking kill yourself about. So, sure. um, I've, I've slowly kind of just figured out how to live my life in a very, uh, simple, cheap way that is kind of in tune with my, and yet at the same time, you still, you know, can get some records and, and different things like oh, yeah. that and yeah. you know, find a kind of a balance and stuff. But yeah, I don't have, you know? I don't have children. I don't have, I don't same. have an extravagant lifestyle. I yeah. have a 12 year old car. I've got 12 year old dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, like you don't, you don't need a lot. Like I'm more, if I was a millionaire, I would have a modest house and just an incredible record collection. Yeah. Same, same. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, exactly. Probably the same car I have right now. I'd have a lot more like, <laughs> You know, action figures or just stupid dumb shit like that. I would. Yeah, exactly, yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But say, uh, hey, you want that? You want that uh, giant size X Men? Hey, I got it for you, buddy. Uh, there we go. There <laughs> we go. Yeah, if anybody has giant size X Men number one that's listening and would like to uh, donate it as a, like, you'd be the ultimate. Right off on your taxes. Yeah, you'd be the ultimate patron. I'd let you pick. <laughs> I'd convince Mark to let you pick the topic of a future episode. Oh, sure. Hands down. Sure. You know, so. Just, Fuck, well, just if you just want a, us to talk about X-Men guys, for two uh, hours, we'll or do. give me G.I. Joe Silent Interlude. That's the only thing is that I what need. you need. Yeah. What's, is that? Uh, it's G.I. Joe 21, I think. So just 21 is like the, the well, hard that's, to find. That's the expensive one. Everything else I could find at a show at some point, yeah. but that's the one that got stupidly expensive. How, what's what's it run for now? It can Probably. go anywhere from like 30 to 75 bucks. Got it. Which it used to be a quarter or 10 cents. And I've got a graphic novel version, but I'd like the. Yeah. That was that was me. I just finally picked up uh, X Men number ninety four, which is the the first new team in the actual comic after Giant Size, and that was that was some Patreon money. These are uh, uh, that was beyond Patreon money. These so, are. I mean, we don't buy sports cars. We're no. we're buying stuff to enrich our lives. <laughs> well, to be fair, for people that think, "Wow, that's pretty economically uh, irresponsible of you," I just refied my house. So when you refi your house, you get a couple months or a month off of mortgage payments, depending on what month. Yeah, yeah. and I lucked uh, out because I did it yes. at the end of December, so I got January and February off. So I said, "It's now or never." If I'm gonna, I, I only get March off. So. I'm gonna, yeah, you're doing your yeah. refi as well, so. But uh, yeah, we're on our way out here, and I guess you know as we sort of close off this this very interesting journey, which we hope you've enjoyed over the past couple episodes, which are, are clearly epic and, and long, <laughs> and lots of things going on. We hope you appreciate the insight that you know we'd like to thank people like Steve and Noah and Aaron and, and Bill for doing kind of actual sort of mini interviews or real long interviews, and then everybody else that sent in you know contributions. That was that was fantastic. Yeah, you know, I really appreciate um, it. I know the band appreciates that. This is all kind of quick too. I mean, it's all within a couple of weeks, so we appreciate the experience. Yeah, I remember finally calling you and being like, "Okay, so here's what I'm up to here." Because I, I wanted to see if there was any. This is the most we've talked to each other on the phone in a yeah, long time. Like, I know. I called you last night. Yeah. About okay. After- <laughs> let's, let's let's break this shit down. Yeah. 
But I, I was like, I could text mark this, but like, I just need to explain it to him. You yeah. know, like, so I talked to, to Elbert, each other on the and phone this is, more as a, yeah. as a race of human beings. So I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, just the only people I talk, I talked to my mom on the phone and I talked to my mom and dad and I talked to Chris. Yeah. I talked to Chris. Yep. Yep. And I talked to Luke, but I guess it's through Facebook messenger. Phone. Still, it's a yeah. phone analog, but he lives in Taiwan. So that's why. Yeah. You don't want it. Um, he's also a patron. Too long distance. So. Thanks, Luke. Um, enclosure and flame, um, or in flames, plural. I, I just said, and maybe it was because I was exhausted at the point where I, I took notes on this. I just said, this is pure fucking pain. The screams are downright scary because of how raw this really gets. It's uh, disarming. It kind of fades in and out of these kind of harrowing, quiet moments to full-throated catharsis. Um, you know, I, is there a movie equivalent to a song like this where you just feel like beaten up? You know, I mean, I told you about that movie, Come and See, that that's a Russian war film that like, yeah. is fucking harrowing. I just... I was thinking of in cinematic terms where I've I've descent. encountered something like this. <laughs> you know, Last House on the Left. You the, know, the, like, the Descent. The Descent, maybe. Yeah. Where she comes out, yeah. covered in blood, yeah. nothing of bones. Like, it's it's kind of like a mythical <sighs> yeah. journey, really. I, oh, I guess I can handle The Descent more than, than this. I mean, I I like this song. It's it's really interesting You've seen and, martyrs? and fascinating. You told me about that. Okay. I've heard of it. It's It's got a reputation. I think it's on my... It's okay, on my, it's on my checklist. We should. So. I'll, I'll I'll find a way to get it. And we can watch it yeah. together. It's 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 one of those movies where uh, not. I'm not going to go off in too much. Just, yeah, but, but it's something that throws a lot of things out there, but it lets you fill in a lot of make. You make it kind of like better the the greater imagination you have. Gotcha. Like they show some stuff and you're just like fuck. You're like oh, but <laughs> wow. but what happens after? Yeah, like I yeah. I could have. What I wanted or what I imagined as the kind of ending is better than what I think they would have intended if they showed a real ending. Gotcha. So interesting. Yeah. I've, that's I've, the kind of stuff I, I've I heard a lot of yeah. interesting things about that. So, so I don't know what your reaction was to this song. I just, it, to me, this is the most raw, open, you know, the, the screams that these guys do in this song. They're not. They're not the kind of screams that I I, I get in Locust Star, and I kind of want to sing along to. It's it's like I don't there's, know. There's another quote that I um, I don't remember what this is from. I don't know if it's from the Decibel thing or this is just something else I found. But um, this is something that uh, it might have been from the Decibel thing, um, Hall of Fame from Landis. That we weren't just trying to write songs or trying to channel something. Um, and that that's something I don't. That wasn't really. I don't think that was addressed much in our. Our interview, maybe the the sentiment was, but um, that that's kind of like the takeaway from this whole thing is it's not about it's about the the emotional catharsis of the whole thing. It's not about just this wasn't what a, a, an album as a as a piece of something to to make money from. No, this, this is an album they had to make. Yeah, and it, at the time, I didn't understand the the kind of like weight of that. And now I kind of start, I'm starting to understand them better. Yeah. I mean, Roder says in the decibel, you know, hall of fame on this, um, it's, it's easily the angriest record we've ever made. I mean, it's this, yeah. this song is just angry. 
It's well, I've just, got a Scott Kelly quote that there, there's a feeling on that record that goes beyond anything we did before or since. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the song, you know, so if this kind of new to you, like if you don't, I don't know if you don't love enclosure and flames, like don't feel bad. It's like, it's not a song I return to very often. Whereas I can, re- I, I only listen to song, this album as a whole. I never pull out songs, yeah. which I, that's my, I'm kind of like a. I think that's important with neurosis. More I'm like than a '70s album guy. Yeah, like I like to hear the whole, the whole thing. But like, I think in neurosis in general, that's kind of the, that's preferred way. Sure, you're not gonna go listen to Fire Within Fireside two and start. You know, you're gonna listen to the whole thing. Yeah, there's there's some truth to that too. So it's it's probably in the sequence of things the the song that needed to be there after something like Aeon. You know? I, I think this it's a. Sp- perfectly sequenced record yeah for sure and you we even asked about that yeah sequencing and stuff like that so um yeah i think it's uh, that we've we've said what we said i think there's uh there's probably more that could be said about this and and others have said that uh there's a lot of really great content that's out there that that unpacks this record what that's what makes us great is that you can keep talking about it and I think what we've tried to do as we kind of explained in part one is, is just take a different angle a little bit oh. and try to, um, you know, give you our perspective, obviously, but also try and bring in the band and their perspective and others who have been touched by the band. And, and well, like a historical perspective, I don't think has really been out there before. Yeah. And that was not some, to the extent that this was. No. And I think that's something we could we you know, bring to, to the table. And, and again, we hope you appreciate it. And so if you did, you know, shoot us uh, an email at requiempodcast@gmail.com and let us know. Give us feedback on this issue uh, or this issue. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm thinking like I'm a journalist again, yeah, Mark. Yeah, yeah. Well, we still are um, because I was doing interviews. This yeah. is more journalistic than most journalism yeah, that we see yeah, on television exactly, right now. Exactly. So, yeah. um, <laughs> but I think like you know, again, shoot us an email. Let us know. You know, feedback like good, the bad, the ugly on these episodes. You and know, if you'd like to send, like give us a short audio clip, we'd love to put it on the show. Yeah. Just keep it under a couple minutes. Yeah, um, we'll, be as succinct as possible. We'd love to put those kind of clips on. I think uh, I think people dig it, and I think uh, we we dig hearing that as well. Sure. And speaking of which, I think I'd be remiss. Um, you know, Brian, who helped me cultivate the the first part, and is also a patron and does the history heavy metal uh, Spotify for us. You know, he he just he wrote me a little something. I'll I'll, I'll acknowledge it because he he did kind of play like a, a singular role in helping with stuff. Um, he says I don't know that I have any insights on Through Silver and Blood that aren't pretty obvious to anyone who has listened to the album. I had heard about Neurosis for years, but didn't actually delve into listening to them until Through Silver and Blood had been around for for a decade and was already considered a classic. When I finally got my hands on a copy and listened to it, uh, it was just as groundbreaking as I had been told. I can say as someone whose formative years were shaped more by Black Flag, The Birthday Party, and Swans than, say, Iron Maiden or Metallica, that this is a record that feels designed to appeal to someone like me without ever feeling contrived or mimicking things that came before. The tribal drumming, the swirling feedback, and the shout at vocals build tension that gives ways to absolutely crushing riffs. I don't play this album as often as I should because it demands so much from me, but every time I do, I get more from it. The music is dark, yet uplifting, and even spiritual. I wish I had discovered through Silver and Blood sooner. This is music that belongs in my life. Well, and that think, basically just summed up our eight-and-a-half-hour episode. Yeah, in a that's nice, a succinct sentence. That's, so. that's it. And uh, and I think he, he kind of says it best that it's maybe not a record I feel comfortable visiting as much as I should because of how raw and, and, and real it is. But when I do, I get something out of it. 
It's, it, I, I think it's like when you want to do mushrooms. You do it once every couple of years, you have a great time, and then you put it away. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That should be our sponsorship right there. <laughs> Brought to you by Magic Brought Mushrooms. Brought to you by fucking mushrooms. Yeah. Um, I think if there's any two episodes that we've done in, in recent times, if the, if the thrash metal didn't get you, it's got to be these, I hope, that could initiate you to become a Patreon and say, wow, these motherfuckers put a lot of work in. Um we go, do it for the love of the work. We do. As neurosis do, they don't do it for the money. That we is do true. this for the love of we the We suffered music. for you guys. Uh, when, I, when I joke on Facebook and stuff that we're suffering, we are. I mean, this, this took a lot of work. Um, I, I don't feel like I suffered at all, though. I feel, I feel enriched. Yeah. I, I mean, suffering in like a, like a good exercise session or something yeah. like that. Like, yeah. I'm going to be healthier on the other end, obviously, exactly. and stuff. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, shoot us uh, or go to patreon.com backslash Requiem Podcast and sign up to be uh, a patron. And you can get access to bonus episodes. Uh, we did three bonus episodes just for the Thrash series alone. Um, those are things that only Patreons can get uh, at this point. So, Heathen. Flotsam and Jetsam and uh, Devastation. Yeah, I believe so. And if you're there, there I know there are some people out there that don't want to um, do the patron thing just for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, if you ever want to, just some people have wanted just got a hold of us to do a one time donation to do a PayPal donation. Um, or and yeah, if you ever want to do that, just something like get a hold of us and yep. we'd, we'd gladly take that. We appreciate that. Yeah, shoot us an email and we'll we'll shoot you back. The Venmo does a nice QR code that they can send. It's really yeah. easy. You know, that'll go right it. back to uh, making the economy grow because yeah. it's going to go right into Discogs orders. I was going to say Discogs, <laughs> Amazon, different different things that you know, books, whatever research kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, so cult. Cult never dies. Where I got those uh, terrorizer issues and stuff. Somebody from. make a fucking U.S. store for that guy. Come yeah, on, man, this is, man, it's this, it's it's really bad. When I was buying stuff when the pound was down, it was great. But yeah. now this is just it's a kick in the dick. The pound's always pounding your ass, man. Trust me. <laughs> when I lived in England, it was it was brutal. I, I got I went broke way quicker there. So, uh, but yeah, or you can go to uh, our website requiem podcast or requiemmetal dot com. And you can click on Patreon there, or you can listen to our first 160 episodes. Um, you know, so we do appreciate it, Mark. It's been a, a hell of a journey. Uh, yeah, I've learned something about myself, I think, and uh, I've learned something about uh, neurosis. And so, hopefully, the rest of everybody else did. Well, we've so. been doing this since uh, th- uh, 3:30 today, and it's 1:30 in the morning. Yeah. So that's 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 how much we, we care. pierced the veil there. Yeah. That's that's something. So. So here we go. We're going to end with Enclosure in Flames from the album Through Silver and Blood. Perhaps you've heard of it. And uh, for Requiem Metal Podcast, I'm Jason. And I'm Mark.